Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Along the base of the western slope of the Taff Valley lies the Welsh village of Aberfan. This small village started with humble beginnings, just a couple cottages and an inn. But after coal was discovered in the mountains, a man named John Nixon and his partners established the first coal mining operation in the area, the Merthyr Vale Colliery. In 1947, the British coal industry was nationalized and put under the control of the National Coal Board. From then on, regulation of the coal industry was provided by a conglomeration of former mining engineers and members of the NCB. Over the decades, Aberfan continued to grow, and by the 1960s, the village had become home to around 8,000 coal miners and their families. If you're thinking there might be a potential problem building a village at the base of some mountains where constant digging is going on high above, you're not the only one. Over the decades, as the miners dug deeper and deeper into the mountains, that also created a lot of coal waste, mostly rocks and thick black coal dust. But because of the terrain, it wasn't particularly easy or cost-effective to cart all that waste away. So rather, the mining corporation began dumping the coal refuse into massive piles known as coal tips. The earliest such pile was deposited on the valley's lower slopes. But over time, as each slip filled up, the miners began depositing the most recent spoil heaps along the upper slopes. By 1966, there were seven such heaps along the western slope hundreds of feet above the tiny village of Aberfan below. Now, if you can see where this is going, so too did a number of other people as well. By 1963, only Tip 7 was being used. But in May of that year, some of the mining engineers began to notice that the tip had started to shift slightly. But at the time, it was decided it was no big deal and the miners let it keep happening. Then in November, a much more substantial slide occurred. And once again, the NCB decided to ignore this one as well. Even though by that point, some concerned citizens had begun writing letters to the NCB expressing their concerns about Tip 7's overall stability. The NCB's response was to point out in not-too-subtle terms that under no circumstances would any action be taken that might disrupt the mining operation. After all, the entire economy of the region depended on it. At the time, oil was quickly outpacing coal as a primary energy source for the country. Between 1960 and 1970, the number of coal miners shrunk from 583,000 to 283,000. Approximately one mine was closing on average every nine days, which meant hundreds and thousands of people's livelihoods went with it. Over the years, a lot of miners and engineers involved in the Merthyr Vale mining pointed out a major potential problem with the coal tips. 
that if water ever got underneath the tip, it could cause the entire pile to become unstable and have a catastrophic slip. Despite knowing this, the National Coal Board still allowed Tip 7 to be built on a sandstone foundation above an underground water spring, and no one ever made any attempt to drain it. By 1966, Tip 7 stood about 111 feet high and contained nearly 300,000 cubic yards of mine waste. To make matters worse, Aberfan is in an area that receives a substantial amount of rainfall each year. On average, about 1,500 millimeters or 60 inches per year. But during the 1960s, that amount increased dramatically. Between 1952 and 1965, severe flooding had swept through the pant glass area of Aberfam on multiple occasions. Residents complained that the water that swept through the streets was black and left a greasy residue behind. Although public meetings were held with the NCB discussing the potential danger to the village presented by Coal Tip 7, and in particular to the Pant Glass Junior School that stood at the base of the hill just below the tip, no action to fix the problem was ever taken. Then, during the first three weeks of October 1966, it began to rain nonstop. On the early morning of October 21st, some of the workers discovered that Tip 7 had begun to slide. To their credit, the crew decided to cancel that day's planned tip operation, but it was far too little and too late to prevent what happened next. The water and sludge had built up enough momentum that it almost seemed to come alive before their very eyes. Some workers later described a glistening black avalanche of liquefied coal waste surging up out of the pit in a tremendous tidal wave. At that time, the Pant Glass Junior School had just started and most of the children were just sitting down at their desks. It was only supposed to be a half day for the children and staff who were about to start a planned holiday. Within seconds, the 30-foot-tall black wave of sludge raced down the hill at a speed of more than 80 miles per hour. Thousands of gallons of black coal waste slammed into the school building, breaching the four classrooms and trapping the children and staff helplessly within. Rescuers quickly rushed to the scene and tried to dig their way through the black sludge to save anyone they could. Along with the Pant Glass School, 18 houses were also destroyed. And by the time the slurry settled, it lay 30 feet deep in spots. In total, 116 children and 28 adults lost their lives in the flood. The Aberfan disaster became one of the biggest scandals in the country's history. Once word got out how many warnings had been made that could have prevented it from happening... Plenty of finger-pointing and official hearings were held. Eventually, most of the blame would be leveled at the National Coal Board over their repeated inaction. But one really strange thing about the disaster is that not only did a number of experienced miners and engineers predict this catastrophe would occur, but so too did a number of other people who couldn't possibly have known what was going to happen. Some of them were people with no connection or any knowledge of Aberfan at all. Others were some of the very same school children who were killed in the disaster. Within hours of the disaster occurring, the tiny village of Aberfan was clogged with miners, reporters, and volunteers who showed up to help. Among those who arrived in Aberfan was a 42-year-old psychiatrist named John Barker, who was researching a book about what he called psychic death. This was the term he used to describe the feelings some people had when they believed they were about to die. 
He had rushed to the village after hearing a news report about a young boy who had escaped from the school unharmed, but still died of fright. Barker was unprepared by the horror of what he saw when he arrived. Bodies of children were being laid out in the streets for identification. Devastated parents stood by in shock and weeping horribly. As Barker began speaking to some of the survivors, he began hearing some strange stories. On the evening before the disaster, an eight-year-old boy named Paul Davies, who died in the flood, drew a picture of a group of people digging in the hillside under the words, The End. At least two weeks before the disaster, a ten-year-old girl named Errol Mae Jones had begun telling her mommy she wasn't afraid to die. Then the day before the disaster occurred, Errol persistently tried to get her mother to listen to her describe the terrible dream she had. At first, Errol's mother told her she was too busy for such nonsense, but Errol insisted. The girl said she dreamed she had gone to school, only there was no school there anymore. Something black had come down all over it. After hearing many more stories like these, Barker dedicated his life to studying the phenomena of people who claimed to possess the ability of psychic precognition, and in particular, visions of impending disasters. Little did Barker know at the time that some of these visions possibly predicted his own death. I'm Nate Hale, and I have a vision of you listening to me for the next half hour or so. And this is The Conspirators. John Barker was part of a new wave of British psychiatrists who sought to drag the system out of a very Victorian way of thinking. He firmly believed in rehabilitating the patient, whereas there was still a prevailing attitude among a lot of older doctors that you should lock the mentally ill up for life and throw away the key. Barker studied at Cambridge, where he earned the nickname Small Print Barker, for his single-minded focus on knowing even the tiniest details of the course materials. Early on in his career, Barker focused on aversion therapy to treat patients, using things like electroconvulsive therapy and drugs that caused nausea in patients to treat addictions and other negative behaviors. He actually had a slot machine installed outside his office that delivered electric shocks when someone pulled the handle. In 1963, Barker took a staff position at Shelton Hospital. This was precisely the sort of old Victorian asylum Barker hoped to bring into the 20th century. The large red brick hospital had been built in 1843 far off the main road and hidden behind a wall of tall trees. When Barker arrived, it was home to around 750 patients and was overseen by a group of older doctors and nurses, many of whom had worked there for decades. When younger doctors like Barker joined the staff, they were told in not-so-subtle terms not to rock the boat. That's just what Barker set out to do, though. He and a couple other younger doctors began doing what they could to actually rehabilitate the patients and prepare them for re-entry to the outside world. Prior to their arrival, the general mindset was that this was a place where the mentally ill went in and never came out again. Barker and some of the other doctors began to phase out the use of electroshock therapy without the use of accompanying drugs. They did other things, too, like opening windows and began allowing patients their own possessions. They even began pushing to remove many of the locks from several of the wards, 
1965, Barker and another psychiatrist named David Enoch co-wrote a paper in The Lancet that argued that many administrators throughout Britain's mental hospitals were misusing their powers under the current system. Both Barker and Enoch shared a fascination with more exotic mental conditions. Barker wrote his doctoral thesis on the condition known as Munchausen syndrome, in which patients fake having illnesses out of a compulsive need to see themselves as sick or injured. In 1967, Enoch asked Barker to contribute a chapter about Munchausen's to a book he was compiling about uncommon psychiatric disorders that is considered a minor classic today. Throughout the five years the two doctors spent together at Shelton, the two became close, friendly rivals. They often stayed up late together, talking shop over coffee. But one thing Barker kept hidden from Enoch during their time working together was his lifelong interest in the paranormal. Barker was a longtime member of Britain's Society for Psychical Research, a group founded in 1882 to investigate paranormal activity. He was first introduced to the world of the occult through his father, an accountant who shared with him several supernatural encounters he had while serving on the front lines during World War I. In his younger years, Barker went ghost hunting in Borley Rectory, which is considered by many to be the most haunted house in Britain. As a medical student at St. George's Hospital in London, he and another student once performed a seance to attempt to make contact with a distinguished surgeon named John Hunter, who died in 1793. He and his colleague didn't have any luck contacting the ghost, but they still wrote about their experiences in the school magazine. Barker actually met his future wife Janet at St. George's while she was a young nursing student, and the two of them had their own unexplained encounter. One night in 1947, the couple snuck away to an empty sitting room near the women's cloakroom and turned the lights off. A short while later, the door suddenly burst open with no one there. This scared the young couple enough that they ran out of the room. Behind them, they heard a loud crash, but later, when Barker worked up the nerve to see what had made the noise, he couldn't find anything out of place. In the summer of 1965, Barker read a letter in the British Medical Journal that piqued his curiosity. The letter told of the death of a 43-year-old Canadian woman who had been admitted to the hospital in Northwest River for a minor procedure to help with chronic incontinence. Although the woman appeared to have no complications during the procedure, while she was in recovery, she began to complain of a sharp pain in her left side. Soon she went into shock, her blood pressure collapsed, and she died suddenly. An autopsy revealed the woman had suffered a rare adrenal hemorrhage that had gone undiagnosed throughout her life. The part of the letter that struck John Barker, though, was where it mentioned the woman had once visited a fortune teller when she was young, and that fortune teller had warned her she would die at age 43. The woman had just turned 43 the week before she went into the hospital. Barker was fascinated with this idea. At the time, he wasn't sure whether this was a true psychic premonition or not. As a man of science, he was still leaning towards the more grounded explanation that it was actually the woman's fear of the fortune teller's prediction that actually caused her demise. He believed he encountered at least two other patients throughout his career who died under similar circumstances, where their fear of impending doom actually caused them to die prematurely. There is a psychological condition known as the nocebo effect that's just the opposite of the placebo effect. In the placebo effect, it's been shown that some sick people who were given sugar pills but told they were powerful medicine that could cure disease in a few instances, actually began to show improvements. Well, just the opposite has been shown to occur as well, where patients become so obsessed with negative feelings 
that they actually begin to suffer physical consequences. For example, studies have shown that there's a general negative attitude among the public about generic brand drugs, even though in many cases those generic brands might be chemically identical to their name brand counterparts. Yet some of those same studies have shown a higher number of complaints from patients taking the generic drugs that they are suffering negative side effects than those taking the name brand versions. After John Barker went to Aberfan following the mining disaster, he began to change his hypothesis that people were worrying themselves to death through the nocebo effect, and instead began to focus on the idea that catastrophic events might be able to be predicted through psychic visions. This also led him to further postulate that if such a tragic event could be predicted by people, could these predictions be acted upon beforehand to save lives? He wrote a paper for the Society for Psychical Research in which he described the two main issues with attempting to use such psychic foreknowledge. One, these predictions would have to be sufficiently clear that anyone could understand them. And two, there needed to be a system in place for the psychic to pass this information along to the proper authorities without ridicule. Barker began corresponding with Walter Cannon, the head of physiology, at Harvard Medical School after learning that Cannon had coined the term voodoo death to describe people who had, in essence, frightened themselves to death. Cannon thought this phenomenon was mostly isolated to indigenous tribesmen and other so-called primitive people prone to local superstition. Barker began writing to Cannon saying that he believed some people actually had the psychic ability to predict deaths before they occurred. These letters caught the attention of Peter Fairley, the science correspondent of London's Evening Standard newspaper, and he wanted to learn more. Fairley became interested in Barker's research and agreed to help him out on a few occasions. At one point, Fairley held a dinner for Barker and a number of astrologers, fortune tellers, and clairvoyants. The dinner was held at Charing Cross Hospital, and there Barker asked the eclectic bunch if any of them could actually foresee a client's death. Fairley peppered them with some of his own questions, such as if any of them could foresee other things that could have practical applications in the real world like solving murders or predicting horse races. Several of them assured the men that they could. Eventually, Barker would go on to test a lot of these claims by consulting a dozen psychics to see if any of them could predict the precise date and cause of his death. Only one responded, and she got it wrong. The two men discussed Barker's theories and eventually fairly agreed to help Barker with an experiment. On October 28, the week after the Aberfan disaster, Fairley wrote in his World of Science column asking if any reader had a genuine premonition of the Aberfan disaster before it occurred. Among those who answered the column was a 52-year-old Kathleen Lorna Middleton. At around 4 a.m. on October 21, 1966, Middleton awoke early after having a terrible nightmare where she felt like the walls were collapsing around her and she was suffocating. At about 8 in the morning, she told a lodger in her home about the terrible sense of foreboding she had. A little over an hour later, the Aberfan disaster occurred. Middleton claimed that she'd had psychic abilities her entire life, although she never marketed herself as a psychic publicly. She was a piano and ballet teacher born in Brockton, Massachusetts, who moved to London with her English-born parents during the Great Depression. She said that she'd always felt different, even as a child, and strange things had a habit of occurring around her. One day when she was seven years old, she claimed to have a memory of standing in the kitchen with her mother while she was frying eggs, when suddenly one of the eggs magically levitated out of the pan 
and rose up until it almost touched the ceiling. As a little girl, Middleton thought the incident was hilarious. But her mother later consulted a fortune teller who told her the levitating egg was symbolic of death. A few weeks later, one of her mother's best friends died unexpectedly. Middleton claimed to have had strange feelings ever since it seemed to predict tragedies. For example, she claimed she might develop a severe headache just hours before news broke of a major earthquake somewhere in the world. Or she might feel oddly anxious before a plane crash. Despite these psychic premonitions, Middleton never marketed herself as a psychic, instead claiming throughout her life she was too busy for that sort of thing. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com socks. In total, Barker received 76 replies to his public appeal for people who predicted the Aberfan disaster. Among those he received was one from a 63-year-old man in Lancashire who dreamed he was trying to buy a book from some sort of large machine with buttons, which he thought was some sort of computer. The white letters Aberfan appeared on the screen. At the time, the man said he'd never heard of the town before. In Plymouth, a woman attending a spiritualist meeting told half a dozen witnesses the night before the disaster that she had a vision involving a schoolhouse, some miners, and an avalanche of coal hurtling down a mountain toward a boy with long bangs. Another story came from a 30-year-old film technician from Middlesex who claimed she jumped up from her chair complaining of a terrible earthy odor within minutes of the disaster occurring. Barker became particularly interested in seven of the people who wrote to him, including Kathleen Middleton, who claimed to have exhibited both physical and mental symptoms prior to the disaster. Barker began to speculate that perhaps some people's psychic abilities could actually turn them into human seismographs, much like the devices geologists use to sense tremors in the earth prior to an earthquake. Over the next several weeks, Barker responded to 60 of the people who wrote to him. He would go on to travel to meet several of them in person. He was so impressed with the stories they told him that he began to speculate that precognition might be a fairly common ability among a lot of people. Along with being the science correspondent for the Evening Standard, Fairley was also a regular commentator on the BBC and ITV, Britain's first commercial TV network. On December 2, 1966, Barker, Fairley, and several of the people claiming to have predicted the Aberfan disaster were invited to appear on legendary talk show host David Frost's program. But Fairley never met any of the psychics Barker had been corresponding with until they all gathered in the green room. Fairley was immediately put off by how strange these people were. When it came time for Barker and his crew to go on, they never got the call to go on the air. Apparently, Frost had taken a peek inside the green room and decided the same thing as Fairley, that these were a bunch of kooks who weren't ready for prime time. Barker was furious he missed his chance to take his experiment mainstream. Fairley continued consulting with Barker, though, and instead suggested he try to document premonitions before events occurred and use that as a measure of success. Fairley and Barker then went to Charles Winter, the editor of the Evening Standard, and persuaded him to open a premonitions bureau. 
they would put out an open invitation for people to write in with their dreams and psychic premonitions. The two men came up with a system to document these premonitions, then grade them using an 11-point system. Five points would be granted based on how unusual the prediction was, five more would be granted for accuracy, and an additional point would be granted for timing. The experiment was set to begin on January 4, 1967 and was scheduled to run for one year. On the day the experiment was launched, a 46-year-old boat racer named Donald Campbell died while trying to break his own water speed record. On his second run, Campbell flipped his racing boat at a speed of 300 miles per hour, killing him instantly. Campbell had always been a superstitious man. He was afraid of the color green and played solitaire to pass the time. During the game he played right before he died, he described to reporters how he had flipped over an ace of spades followed by a queen. He said these were the same cards Mary, Queen of Scots, turned over right before her execution in 1587. He then told reporters he thought this was a sign someone close to him was going to die. He just hoped it wasn't him. Over the years following Barker's Premonitions Bureau experiment, plenty of researchers have rightly criticized the psychiatrist's methodology. There are a number of problems inherent in trying to test precognition in this way. For one thing, human beings are hardwired to look for patterns in things and make connections even where there really aren't. This can be a terrific tool for problem solving, but can also be quite problematic as well. Coincidences happen all the time. And just because you make a connection between two events doesn't necessarily mean they're related at all. People have been claiming the ability to predict the future for practically as long as there has been written language. The Bible is full of accounts of individuals who claim to have foretold the future. The ancient Greeks had a long history of soothsayers. King Philip II once consulted the Oracle of Delphi who assured him his son would one day be a legendary leader. That child grew up to be Alexander the Great. In April 1909, Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung famously argued over precognition in Freud's Vienna apartment. At one point, Jung began to experience a strange burning sensation in his chest. Then the two men heard a crashing noise coming from a bookshelf. When Jung claimed this was yet another premonition, Freud told him it was nonsense. Nonetheless, both men still got up to look around for whatever made the loud noise. Skeptics will say that people predict things all the time, yet no one ever remembers the countless predictions that don't come true. We only remember the ones that seem to correlate to future events. Take the predictions of Nostradamus, for example. Plenty of skeptics have rightly pointed out that his quatrains are so obtusely written, you could apply them to all sorts of major events and say he predicted the future. In the case of Aberfam, we have to take each of the people who responded to Barker's call for predictions word for it that they actually had visions of the disaster before it occurred. This isn't to say that these people were all lying, but memory is a funny thing and events can get jumbled over time. Things we think happened in a certain order might not really have occurred that way at all. Possible some people either ascribed strange feelings they had and linked them to Aberfam later on, or perhaps these same predictions didn't really happen until after the mining disaster, and people were just misremembering the order of events. Barker's Premonitions Bureau wasn't the first time anyone ever tried to test psychic precognition in this manner. During the late 1920s, a British engineer named J.W. Dunn wrote a book called An Experiment with Time, in which he came up with a complex theory that combined the theory of relativity, quantum physics, and people's dreams. 
He called this theory serialism, and it's a little difficult to explain what Dunn meant by it all. But he did encourage people in his book to keep dream diaries and share that information with others in case they foretold the future. In 1963, there was a playwright named J.B. Priestley, who was also a devotee of Dunn's work. He went on the BBC and invited viewers to write to the network describing their precognitive visions. The station received more than 1,500 letters. After getting bombarded with letters from purported psychics, Barker became so convinced that he was on the right track that he no longer thought of the Premonitions Bureau as a simple experiment. He believed psychic precognition was absolutely real, and he wanted to turn his bureau into a national early warning system for foretelling disaster. That would be on the same level as the National Weather Service. He wrote to the medical news that he thought the Premonitions Bureau should become an official entity for gathering and disseminating predictions in order to save lives. He described his own vision for this network. He said that they would need some sort of formal system for collecting all this data and then enter it into some sort of computer which could be used to issue public alerts of impending disaster. Within its first 48 hours in operation, the Premonitions Bureau received nearly two dozen warnings. Although Barker was a true believer at this point in these predictions, he also fully expected he would receive plenty of false alarms as well. His group would just have to get better about weeding those out. There was also another inherent problem he realized with predicting a disaster. Supposing someone did issue a credible prediction of, say, a plane crash. Now, if this warning was taken seriously and that plane was grounded and never crashed, then how can anyone be certain the prediction was correct? Barker wrote, Theoretically, there might be no premonitions since no disaster would have occurred. There is a definite negative side to predicting the future. If you've ever seen the movie Minority Report, you can see some of the big pitfalls of precognition. In that film, a group of psychics is used to predict murders before they occur, and a team of police officers are tasked with arresting the would-be murderers before they actually commit the crime. Now take that proverbial plane we described earlier that might have crashed, but instead never got off the ground. Consider a scenario where that same plane was carrying a shipment of life-saving drugs that was meant to go to some far-off corner of the earth and could have saved hundreds of people who needed them. Only those drugs never got there because a psychic predicted that plane should never take off. In the spring of 1967, Barker's Premonitions Bureau got its first major hit. This was in fact a prediction about a plane crash. Only this prediction wasn't acted upon and the plane still crashed and people died. One of the people who claimed to have foreseen the Aberfan disaster was a man named Alan Hencher. On March 21st, Hencher phoned Barker to tell him he'd had a vision of a plane crash over the mountains. He said there would be 123 or 124 people on board. One month later, a turboprop Britannia passenger airplane crashed while attempting to land in Cyprus. The plane had been on a course from Bangkok to Basel and had gotten caught in bad weather before crashing into a hill and bursting into flames. There had been 130 passengers on board this plane, and of that group, 124 of them died. Fairley was so impressed with the seeming accuracy of this prediction, he published a story about Hencher's prediction that ran under the headline, The Incredible Story of the Man Who Dreamed Disaster. Hencher was a 44-year-old telephone operator for the post office who lived with his parents in Essex. He claimed to have begun having premonitions after suffering a head injury during a car crash when he was in his 20s. Like Kathleen Middleton, 
Fincher often suffered physical symptoms that coincided with his predictions. On the day of the plane crash, Fincher felt another sudden wave of nausea come over him, and he had the overwhelming urge to reach out to Barker. At one in the morning, Barker's phone rang, startling him awake. It was Hencher, and he sounded distressed. He told Barker he should check his gas supply. He'd had a terrible feeling about his well-being all day. Barker lived with his wife and three children in a rented home in Barnfield. Only there was no gas supply to be worried about. Hencher then asked Barker if he drove a dark-colored car, to which Barker replied that he did. Before Hencher hung up, he told Barker he should look after himself because he was certain the man's life was in danger. This phone call certainly left Barker feeling worried. He was a believer in Hencher's psychic abilities, especially since he was spot on about the details of the plane crash. Barker knew he ought to heed his own advice and write down everything he could about Hencher's warnings, just in case they came true. At the same time, Barker had also written a book about the idea that some people could so thoroughly convince themselves they were going to die that they actually worried themselves to death. So in Barker's case, he decided to be cautious, just not too cautious. Over the next few months, Hencher continued to be one of the stars of the Premonitions Bureau. He continued to describe his visions to Barker, and some of them it did appear to conform to some major events around the world. Kathleen Middleton was another big star of the group. She also continued reporting her visions, many of which they were able to match up to some major news events. Middleton had visions of a shipwreck in France, some major flooding in Alaska, tornadoes in the American Midwest, and on April 23, 1967, she had a vision of a terrified spaceman. The following night, news broke of Soviet cosmonaut Vladimir Komarov, who died on re-entry to Earth. On May 1st, Hencher phoned Barker again, this time to tell him he'd had a vision of another airplane crash. This time he was certain the plane would crash within the next three weeks, and that the plane had distinctive tail fins and there would be children involved. Barker wrote to Fairley the next day and asked him what he thought he should do with the information. There was still time to save those people, if they could only figure out when and where this crash would occur. But after three weeks passed, there was no plane crash that seemed to conform to Hencher's vision. That still didn't deter Barker's belief in Hencher's abilities, or in the usefulness of his Premonitions Bureau. During its first year in operation, the Premonitions Bureau cataloged nearly 500 predictions. They gathered predictions from several psychics, but Hencher and Middleton remained the group's stars. During the fall of 1967, the pair appeared to correctly predict a train crash near London. Middleton had a vision of a train crashing while a crowd of passengers stood on a railway platform under the words Charing Cross. Hencher suffered a severe migraine during a shift at work and had to be taken to the hospital at the exact same moment the train derailed. After that, Hencher continued to warn Barker that his life was in danger. On February 7, 1968, Middleton also began having visions of Barker's death. She said she had a dream of Barker alongside her parents who were both dead, and that it appeared their spirits were trying to tell her something. Then on March 11th, Middleton began writing letters to Barker telling him she'd been having increasingly disturbing visions about Senator Robert Kennedy. The word assassination kept bouncing around inside her head, and she grew increasingly agitated as the weeks dragged on. On June 4th, Middleton frantically called the Premonitions Bureau three times to say something terrible was about to happen to Senator Kennedy. At just past midnight on June 5th, an assassin gunned down Robert Kennedy in the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles, minutes after winning the California presidential primary. Barker later said it was her most accurate prediction ever. 
A month later, on Sunday, July 28th, Middleton wrote to Barker again, warning him his life was still in danger and that the time of his death was drawing near. She said she had another dream about her parents that she said was another warning about his impending death. Barker continued to take these warnings from Middleton and Hencher seriously, but at the same time he didn't know what to do about it. The two psychics remained adamant that his life was in real danger, but they were also frustratingly vague about the exact date or circumstances surrounding his death. Even though he remained worried about what Middleton and Hencher kept saying to him, he also tried to remain calm so that he didn't end up frightening himself into having a heart attack and ending up just like one of the subjects he wrote about in his own book. Then in the morning of August 18, 1968, Kathleen Middleton woke up in the early morning feeling like she was unable to breathe. She felt as if she was choking and she tried crying out for help. Only no words came out. It was later that day when Middleton received word that at the same time she woke up gasping for breath. John Barker suffered a brain hemorrhage at his home. He was soon rushed to the hospital, where he died. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. I have a new Patreon supporter to thank. Thank you to Michael for signing up and helping support the show. Just a reminder that patrons of the show get access to all sorts of nifty bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our exclusive bonus mini-episodes. If you're interested in becoming a patron of the show, I'll put a link in the show notes. Another great way you can help support the show is to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. Each one of your ratings and reviews helps boost us in Apple's charts and spreads the good word about the conspirators to more people. If you're not an Apple, not to worry. You can also find us on Stitcher, Spotify, and pretty much everywhere else you get your podcasts. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, where you can listen to our entire back catalog of shows. Elsewhere, follow us along on social media. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and our Facebook page. You can even write us an old-fashioned email at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com. I love to hear from you. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll be back next time.